Welcome to the Aspen Chapel podcast with Nicholas and Heather Vesey. It's just a way that we become connected with that consciousness. It elevates us. The music of the spheres as we, you know, the way we, reason we have music here is to enable us to, to get a greater sense of that uh, interconnectedness. And, and that introduction by Wayne Teasdale about cosmic interconnectedness of all creation, you know, I think that that is the shift in understanding that needs to take place in the world today if we're going to avoid an extinction event. Because it's worth pointing out that although we have climate change, although we are ravaging the planet and denuding it of trees and forests that enable our planet to breathe, although we are allowing species after species to become endangered and go towards extinction, the planet is going to be okay. It survived the cataclysmic meteor strike that got rid of the dinosaurs, and you can be sure that it'll survive whatever mankind decides to throw at it. It will adapt and change as it always has done, and it will come out healthier. What is less certain is the outlook for humanity. Because if we don't change in some way and respect the life that's around us, animals, trees, plants and other species, then the adaption that will take place will be the one that gets rid of humanity. As the planet adapts to what we're doing, and climate change is a way that the planet is adapting, it will adapt in such a way that it'll become less viable for humans. And the reason for that is that for the planet to survive, it has the intelligence to realize that maybe humans must go. Although, you know, we don't think of the planet as being a living, breathing and thinking entity, it is. It breathes through the trees and the plants. It's obviously living. And there is such a thing as a planetary mind. You only have to look to see how the planet has adapted over the millennia to see that mind in action. And as I said, the way that it responded with climate change is a stark reminder of the planetary mind. Later this morning, we'll be blessing the animals outside. And that may sound rather a, a twee or fey thing to do. Twee meaning excessively quaint, pretty or sentimental. And fey meaning someone who seems like they come from another world. You know, we, myself and Greg, will be supposedly putting our hands on these animals to touch them in such a way they'll be somehow blessed as if God's power is coming through us. In fact, I think our blessing of the animals is an act of respect. The word blessing comes from the Latin word benedicere, which means to worship. And to worship means to give worth to. That's where the actual etymology is. To worship is to give worth to. So what we're actually doing when we're blessing these animals is that we're giving worth to them. We're saying that they matter deeply to us. And in fact, 
with that concept in mind of, of natural mysticism, they matter to us because they are made of the same stardust that we are made of. They are given life by the same ground of being that we were given life by. They are conscious and their consciousness is of an order of the same consciousness that we have. In fact, in some cases, they're conscious of more than we are. You know, dogs do hear more, cats see more, whales can navigate and communicate over hundreds of miles, birds know how to fly. Our consciousness exceeds theirs only in terms of our ability to be logical and self-reflect. Other than that, they are our brothers and sisters. We may love dogs and cats and our animals, but as a species, we're killing creatures and hounding them out of existence, just as we are killing ourselves by our lack of compassion for each other and that we are forcing the planet to get rid of us in order that we might survive. So I think we're surely at a crossroads in terms of the way that we're living in relationship to the planet. Seven billion people all competing for the resources. Some get rich, others just get by. Some feed their appetites, others just try to feed their families. And it's not working. The idea of a dystopian future is so present to us that in some libraries, they've even moved the books on dystopian futures from science fiction to current affairs. It looks bleak. And you can see, you know, you can see the different visions of those dystopian futures, you know, in films, you know, you know, conjure up in your mind what's predicted by Ridley Scott's Blade Runner or Cormac McCarthy's The Road, the most terrifying book I have ever read. Or The Omega Man or Silent Green or Ishiguro's Never Let Me Go or Escape from New York. Yeah, they all have a different image, these films. I'm sure you see most Or AI or Gattaca. I saw that recently, it's a fantastic movie. Or Minority Report, iRobot, Planet of the Apes, 1984, Clockwork Orange, The Children of Men, Wall-E, or even The Matrix. You can see there are so many visions, but most of them suggest that all is not going to end well. And why should it? there doesn't really seem to be a reason for optimism. Our leaders seem to want to leave it till the last moment before they act. Their attention is more on national defence, the economy, or whether or not they're going to get elected. They don't see the cataclysm that's ahead of them with sufficient urgency to act. And we all seem hopeless in the face of it. We, you know, we can compost, we can minimise our carbon footprint. We can be nice to animals and humans. But in reality, this seems so small and petty that surely it won't have an impact. Governments can invent machines to get rid of carbon monoxide. They can tax carbon emissions and humans. 
to affect behavior, but in reality, this also seems small and petty. None of it's going to really make a difference that it needs to if we're going to avert a coming crisis. Most of us here really don't feel the urgency of the crisis as we go about our daily lives and we go to the grocery store, to the school, to the dinner table, to work, to the bar, to the TV. You know, we just carry on and really hope for the best. But today is a day that we can do more than that. It's, today is the Feast of St. Francis. And, you know, actually people do bless animals traditionally on this day because it's the Feast of St. Francis, um, to show worth uh, and to give them love. Uh, to quote Wayne Teasdale again, he has a good, this is what he says about St. Francis. St. Francis of Assisi, 13th century friar, was a celebrated nature mystic. He exhibited total openness to and solidarity with the natural world and all the creatures who inhabited. In this, his spirituality was similar to that of Native Americans. He accepted all as being brothers and sisters and treated them with love and respect. He was famously able to communicate with birds, animals and even fish. And he reached out to them on occasions and felt a deep connection with them in God. All creatures were instantly attracted to him because his ego never obstructed the flow of relating. Francis's cosmic mysticism was based on his relationship with God, his immense joy, his deep perception of the unity and interconnectedness of all things, beings, flowers, trees, winds, air, sun. And he sang the cosmic mystical institution in the lyrics to his prayer, the canticle of Brother Sun. And here we, you know, we can begin to connect up the dots, I think, in a way that we can make a difference. And it's all about, I think, education. Educare, the Latin words to ducare, to draw e out. Education is to draw out. And we have to draw out from ourselves and from others, from humanity around us, the realization that everything is connected and interdependent with everything else. More than that, there is a fundamental order to the universe, a ground of being that everything is a part of. And that's where the idea of natural mysticism comes in, the tangible experience of unity, the perception that we are all one with everything on the earth, in the universe, and that ultimate reality, that we're not separate. And as Wayne Teasdale said, that creates understanding between ourselves and other species. Understanding between ourselves and the planet. Understanding between ourselves and each other. Now, I know some of us, you know, have had a glimpse of this experience. We know it to be true, even if we don't act out of that understanding all the time. We know that unity is there. But most of the world doesn't and doesn't act out of it doesn't act out of the idea it acts out of the idea most of the world that everything is separate and therefore we must all fight for what we can get to put food on the table to make sure our family our community our country has enough and that others don't take what we have 
to defend ourselves from others taking it and, if necessary, to go to war to protect it. But I think that's not the only way of thinking. And increasingly, others are thinking in a different way. Spiritual communities like ours, here, all over the world, have this understanding of the unity of all things. And that understanding is breaking out, I think, in the general consciousness. You can see it in the popularity of yoga, of meditation, even in the emergence of Marianne Williamson, of popular thinkers that really espouse a different perspective. And, you know, it is in the mainstream now. And our role is to uphold that understanding and to expand it through educational programs. Because within that understanding of the unity of all things and the interconnectedness of all things is the solution to the cataclysm that faces us. Good ideas won't do it. Only a shift in consciousness, one that brings about a new thinking that will bring humanity to a more equitable relationship with other species and the planet. Now, I mentioned a few weeks ago, but it's worth mentioning here because it pertains to what I'm talking about, um, that from a spiritual perspective, humanity is going through a second axial age. The idea of an axial age was put forward by Carl Jaspers, who said that the first axial age took place between the 800 BC and up to the death of Jesus. Axial as in axis, a pivotal point. Jaspers saw this first age as being pivotal through the emergence of a shift from localised issues to an awareness of the transcendent. And he saw it in the emergence of Confucius, and Lao Tzu living in China, schools of Chinese philosophy in India produced the Upanishads, the Buddha came along, um, there's a whole gamut, Zarathustra, Elijah, Eliza, uh, uh, Jeremiah, uh, Homer, and right the way up to um, the death of Jesus. And now Michael Bowens, the philosopher, argues that we are in a second axial age, characterised this time by the growth of global consciousness. Still acutely aware of individual existence, we recognise our roles as global beings. And he sees that in the awareness of the world. You know, we have much more of a global awareness, um, an awareness of the world, of the cosmos, as being one reality, a reflection on the transcend and the, and the nature of ultimate reality. And looking at the idea of compassion, and concern emerging between peoples. And this is, I think, the only understanding that's going to help us to solve the global problems we're confronting at the moment as the planet decides whether or not it can continue to host humanity, or whether the development in consciousness that humanity has ushered in is just too costly for the planet to survive. Either we adapt, or the planet will adapt us out of existence. And, and I think all of us have a responsibility in that. We have a special responsibility because we are privy to that spiritual understanding that does hold the answer to these problems, which is why the existence of communities like ours is so vital. 
we hold the knowledge of the shift in consciousness that's necessary for humanity to adapt in such a way as to become viable again, to be a contributing part of the planet rather than a taking part. And each of us has that knowledge within us in a small part. Each of us has a bit of the solution, a small part that goes right the way back to Buddha, Lao Tzu, Krishna, Muhammad, Jesus, back to St. Francis, Meister Eckhart, up to Krishnamurti, Paramahansa Yogananda, the Dalai Lama. We are in that chain, in that tradition. And we have to hone that understanding and know that it will eventually can become dominant and lead to a shift in global consciousness that can bring about our reconciliation with the rest of the planet. Because if it doesn't, we're sunk. Each of us to take, has to take our responsibility for our place within that, the way we communicate, the way we live our lives, what we support, how we act. We have to be aware of our place within that and make a difference. And it's only when enough of us stand up and say, this is the way the world is, that the world will eventually hear. And then what? Then, I think, we'll see the disintegration of national boundaries, a sharing of resources, a compassion for all people and things, a recognition that I am my brother's keeper, and together we are a part of a planet and a universe that is in harmony, and we are a part of that harmony. That, I think, is the utopian future that we're living in here. And in blessing our animals, we're making a small but significant statement to that end. I've come to the end of my notes now. So look, I, you know, I always put a microphone out here so people can come back at me if they want to. So please do feel free if you want to say anything about what I've said or, or share anything yourself. There is a microphone, you just have to go there and I will stop babbling uh, if you want to do that. But, um, in the meantime, I just thought we, you know, that experience of natural mysticism that's available to all of us. I mean, we are in such a beautiful environment here. I mean, I drove up, you know, to Ashcroft yesterday, and just the, the, the trees and everything just forced itself upon you, you know. And, and I think to be open to that experience is an important thing. And I just got... The, just a few little readings of people who have been open to that experience, just to give you an idea of the experience that I'm talking about that leads to that different consciousness. And this is, first of all, from Forrest Reed, uh, the writer. He says, if I'd never realized how, it was as if I'd never realized how lovely the world was. I lay down on my back in the warm, dry moss and listened to the skylark singing as it mounted up from the fields near the sea, into the dark, clear sky. No other music gave me the same pleasure as that passionate, joyous singing. It was a kind of leaping, exultant ecstasy, a bright, flame-like sound rejoicing in itself. And then a curious experience befell me. It was as if everything that had seemed to be external and around me was suddenly within me. The whole world seemed to be within me. 
It was within me that the trees waved their green branches. It was within me that the skylark was singing. It was within me that the hot sun shone and that shade was cool. A cloud rose in the sky and passed in a light shower that pattered on the leaves. And I felt its freshness dropping into my soul. And I felt in all my being the delicious fragrance of the earth and the grass and the plants and the rich brown soil. I could have sobbed. I think that's, that's, that's nice. Another one. This is B. Griffiths. Now I was suddenly made aware of another world of beauty and mystery such as I'd never imagined to exist except in poetry. I experienced an overwhelming emotion in the presence of nature, especially at evening. It began to wear a kind of sacramental character for me. I approached it with a sense of almost religious awe. And in the hush that comes before sunset, I felt again the presence of an unfathomable mystery. The song of the birds, the shape of the trees, the colors of the sunset. There were so many signs of this presence which seemed to be drawing me to itself. I liked the silence of the woods and the hills. I felt that there was a sense of presence, something undefined and mysterious which was reflected in the faces of the flowers and the movements of the birds and animals, in the sunlight falling through the leaves and in the sound of running water, in the wind blowing on the hills and the wide expanse of sky. And Ralph Waldo Emerson, standing on the bare ground, my head bathed by the blithe air and uplifted into infinite space, all mean egotism vanished. I became a transparent eyeball. I am nothing. I see all. The currents of the universal being circulate me. I'm a part or a particle of God. And finally, William Wordsworth. There was a time when meadow, grove, and stream the earth and every common sight to me did seem apparelled in celestial light. The glory and the freshness of a dream, to me the meanest flower that blows can give thoughts that do often lie too deep for tears. Thanks for listening. If you feel moved to make a donation to the chapel, please go to aspenchapel.org. Thank you. And if you'd like to receive these podcasts regularly, subscribe to the Aspen Chapel through Apple, Google Play, YouTube, or any other outlet.